0: This has taken me seven months of my life to complete, and I am super pleased
1: how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching Expat Secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Expat Money Show. Today we are really lucky to have with us a true influencer. He is a speaker and a coach and the owner of TheInfluenceMarketer.com. He has been working with influencers since 2008, working with companies such as HP, Dell, Time, and Oxfam, and other Fortune 500 companies. He's originally from New York and currently resides in Houston, Texas. Please welcome Tom Algenthaler. Tom, how are you?
2: Hey, great. I am excited to be
1: here. We're excited to have you. This is a really interesting opportunity. When we met online, I hadn't actually met anyone who specifically works with influencers to help others grow their business. So I'm really interested to learn from you today, and I think my listeners will be as well. Why don't you just take maybe two minutes and just kind of give us a backstory on how you became a pioneer in this type of a field?
2: Sure. It all started when I was still working at the computer company HP. And I was part of their public relations team. And in particular, I handled the consumer laptop product line uh, worldwide. So that meant that any press release that went out or any kind of announcement that went out about one of the products, I was at least involved in it if I didn't lead that particular announcement. Now, during that time, I'm going to take you guys back a little bit. Remember that. The economy was shaky. The banks really weren't doing well here, at least in the United States. And there was a lot of fallout. And many publications that I had to work with as part of my job were folding up or sort of pseudo collapsing and becoming an online publication instead of a print publication. And there were a lot of changes. So what that meant was is that I had less outlets to work with. And many of the journalists that I knew and had worked with for years were bailing and jumping ship and and going off into other jobs themselves, so it was a a little bit of a tenuous time, but the thing that everybody has to remember is is that when you're in a position like that, your management doesn't care. they don't want to hear about all the problems going on they want you they just want results, so they want to make sure that. The products are getting announced properly and that there's traction around those announcements and that the ideal customers are being reached through those announcements. So I had to look for alternative ways to get in front of those ideal customers. And the way that I did it was to find what we called back then bloggers. We didn't call them influencers. We just called them bloggers. And these are people who ran blogs or websites and used to write or video themselves uh, talking about technology. And it was a a bit of a process, but I I finally cobbled together a list of these people and I began to outreach to them and ask them if they would be interested in working with me and HP. And the response I got was unbelievable because they were thrilled, first of all, that a company like HP would even reach out to them, number one, and number two, The fact that I was going to supply them with a product to review and to blog about or to shoot video around was astounding to them. So I got the product in their hands and the results were unimaginable. I didn't really know what to expect. I had some hopes, but I didn't know what to expect. And in one case, one of the bloggers published what I would consider to be the equivalent of a 20 page term paper in college. (laughs) <laughs> on a laptop I had supplied him, <laughs> he loved it. And he took it into his environment and he worked on it and he used it in presentations at work and he used it in coffee shops uh, and he experimented with it you know, using different software and it was just unbelievable. So when I saw the results start to roll in, I said to my management, I said, this is the beginning of something very, very different. And we need to be in front of this. And, uh, you know, they were, well, how, how do I put it? They were sort of, they were lukewarm about it. They didn't really didn't know what to make of it. And they didn't know if these people were going to stick around long or whatever. But that was the beginning of it all. That's how it all started.
1: So you were actually helping bloggers and vloggers and things like that monetize their website maybe before that was a viable business for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, certainly, because in those days, People, people didn't really think in terms of monetizing. They thought in terms of just building an audience. So the first thing that I, I was doing was helping them build the audience because by working with a company like HP, they were getting more credibility than they would have had otherwise. So the audience members were like, oh boy, you know, this, this person is getting, this blogger is getting you know product from HP to review and stuff. I'm going to pay attention. The second thing was the monetization because they started to ask me, you know, what could we do to you know, make some money off of this? So I started to suggest some ways in which they might be able to do that. The one way that we did not want them to do that was to <laughs> sell the product we supplied them. Instead, what I suggested to them was, look, why don't you have a raffle or some kind of a contest and give the product away to a lucky reader or a lucky viewer? And that way, you're going to engage your audience even that much more. And any ads that you're running on your site, you know, through Google or something like that, you're going to get more ad revenue. So that was the way that we sort of handled it at that point in time.
1: So that was 2008. And then I know that you've worked with many companies since then. When did you move on from HP?
2: I left HP in 2009. And there were a number of reasons for that. But one of the reasons was is that I had brought in the influencer, Tim Ferriss. I don't know whether everybody on the podcast is familiar with him. They probably are. I'm assuming they are because he wrote the groundbreaking book, The Four-Hour Workweek.
1: He's one of my favorite people. He's one of the podcasts that actually influenced me to begin the Expat Money Show. So I'm a big fan. I actually saw pictures of you with him on social media. It's in my notes here to actually ask you about
2: (laughs) that. Well, well, I reached out to Tim through some people that I knew at a partner company who had done a little bit of work with him, and I invited him into what we routinely did at HP was if we had a new product announcement, there's usually a number of products and they were bundled together. And what we would do is we would go on a, what we call a product tour. And we would visit different cities like New York and Chicago and San Francisco or something. And we'd rent a hotel suite and we'd set everything up and we'd invite all of the reporters and editors and reviewers. And in this case, some bloggers in to look at the product before it was released to the public. And I invited Tim to one of those. He was excited to come. And it was, for me, the beginning of something really kind of special because I got to work with somebody who was really up and coming. And I could tell that he was a bit different than everybody else. He wasn't just talking about products. He wasn't just talking about services and things like that or just trying to monetize something. Tim was trying to build a movement. And when I read his book, it really impacted me, too, because I could see the potential in everything that he talked about. And I loved the fact that he laid it out in such a clear manner for other people to follow. And we did a few things together, but upper management wasn't really that enlightened yet. And they didn't really want to do anything with them to the degree that I did. So that's when I decided that it might be a good time to leave. And I joined a small consultancy that specialized in influencer marketing and marketing. I was there for, oh, gee, about six or seven years. And I
1: believe you actually traveled around the world quite a bit doing presentations. Was that with this company or was this afterwards?
2: Well, I traveled a bit with HP because they would hold events in different cities throughout the world. For instance, I helped set up an event in Shanghai, China. I helped out in Berlin, Germany. I traveled the world as part of the influencer marketing company because one of our biggest clients, lo and behold, was HP although it was no longer the consumer side of things, it was the business to business side of things. So it was the enterprise side, Mm -hmm. but multiple events, Spain, Germany, we held an event in Singapore. So we went all over the place and it was really fun and fascinating. And I even got to visit Dubai once and present to a small conference there about how to do influencer marketing. And that was. I think about 2010, so that was a while ago.
1: Was that your first time over in the Middle East then? This, uh, Middle East is where I call home, for those of you who don't know. So I'm always curious what people think of somewhere like Dubai or Abu Dhabi.
2: So that, that was the first time I'd been to Dubai, the Arab Emirates. I'd been to Israel and Egypt in the past. That was part of a, a college course. And getting a chance to go to someplace like Dubai was really exciting for me. Because to me, it's sort of an exotic destination.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Even for me, and I've been over here for six years, so I, I still feel the same.
2: You because know, here in the United States, we hear so much about it. There's a lot of great press about it because of the cities they're building and the skyscrapers and the exciting commerce going on there. So well, I was really pretty thrilled to go on that trip. I wish I could have spent a little more time there. But unfortunately, I, I, I couldn't at the time. So at some point, I'd love to get back, though.
1: Well, I'll let you know. We've got some conferences coming up in 2018. Maybe we'll work something out. We'll bring you out, Tom.
2: <laughs> awesome. I'd love it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. So, Tom, tell me a little bit about what you're working on now. Where Where is your focus?
2: Well, my focus now is on a couple of different things. I consult with companies. And when I say companies, that's a pretty broad word. And that can mean many different things. So, I work with Fortune 500 companies, but I try to help them with uh, implementing influencer programs in-house, which they can then take and scale through using an agency. I also help Fortune 500s or Fortune 1000s, whatever, uh, with employee amplification. So that's kind of a buzzword, which is sort of cropping up these days, So, so let me explain. Employee amplification is when you go into an organization and you help that organization leverage their employees to become influencers in their own right. So I go in and I help an organization figure out how to do that within the guidelines that the organization has set for itself and within the cultural guidelines as well that the organization operates. So, you know, that could be any kind of company these days, but really when you think about it, some of the most Knowledgeable people about an organization are the employees, and they are not going out there talking to the world about what it is that they're doing and the great things that they provide to their customers, which If you can leverage that, you could really turn it into a a sort of marketing engine, if you will, if you keep it up.
1: So what level are you talking in employees? You're talking C-level people or you're talking just anyone in the organization?
2: Oh, that's a great question. C-level people are great, but they usually don't have the time to dedicate to doing it. Every once in a while, you'll find a C-level person who, who will do it. What I'm talking about is I'm talking about like director level on down. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about managers inside an organization because those are the people that usually are instrumental in building and putting together a product or service from scratch. And, you know, they're exposed to focus groups and they're exposed to all of this different data and material. And they are very, very knowledgeable. And they are often the ones that are best equipped to answer consumer questions or customer questions and to interface. So think of it, if you could leverage your workforce to become an army of influencers that talks about and evangelizes what your company's doing, just think about how well that can penetrate the space out there and sort of bypass the noise, if you will, and get in front of those target consumers that you want to reach.
1: That makes perfect sense. And What that makes me think of as well, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's called the NUMI protocol. I think it's a Japanese idea. And... The idea is that the person who is closest to the problem should have authority over it and should be able to deal with it, that it doesn't always need to go up the food chain, that even someone who does not have an official title, they're the closest to that individual problem. So they have the decision-making ability. So what you're talking about is working with managers, and they know the product and the thing so well that they have permission to to speak about it openly to everybody.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Now, in terms of companies, I also work with small, medium businesses, too. It's just on a different level. And what I try to help them with is how to leverage influencers to cut through that content marketing noise, which is so prevalent today, to reach their ideal consumers. And it's the methods are really not that different for a, a small, medium business than it is for a Fortune 500 company. It's just that a Fortune 500 usually has budget that they can allocate to it, which is small medium businesses operating on a much (laughs) a much thinner budget than a larger company is.
1: So you work more with cultivating new influencers and helping them to develop opposed to working with really established names that maybe we might know, or do you do both sides? I do
2: both sides. So it just depends on the needs of the customer. So Mm -hmm, mm you know very often today, you'll find influencers that are getting very expensive to work with because they are in high demand. So what we try to do in that case is you might, if you were to structure a program for a company, you might pick out one or two of those people to work with, but then you're going to go a notch down in terms of audience size, and you're going to look for people that are up-and-comers, and you're going to want to try to establish relationships with them, and work with them because as they rise up to the rank, if you want to call it that, as they gain audience and they become more engaged and they become more influential, you're in a very good position at that point to be able to work with them and negotiate better rates because you will have worked with them you know, when they were just still up and coming.
1: Mm-hmm. And you help them develop as well. Exactly. So it's, a, it's a win-win situation. So I'm very curious, if you're helping someone blossom into an influencer, what are some of the characteristics you might look for in an individual? What are those things that you would want to see before you proceed?
2: That's a great question. It's very similar to what in the industry we call the KPIs. So those are key performance indicators. So I look for certain things. I look for four main qualities when I'm starting out with an influencer. And the first is relevance. So Is the influencer relevant to the brand or the product or the service or whatever? The next is resonance. And that's another way of saying engagement. Does that influencer get engagement from the audience? And it might not be on the blog or or the YouTube channel where you see the most engagement. It could be that the engagement is happening on Facebook with the posts that they put there or even Instagram or some other social platform. So you have to look carefully to see where the engagement is happening. Another one is the reach. So you want to see the size of the audience, but audience size can be deceiving. And there is a statistic or a few statistics out there that point to the fact that the larger an audience size gets, the less engagement that influence will have. So that's why I'm a little hesitant sometimes working with influencers who have huge, huge audiences because the level of engagement might be much lower. So those are some of the measures that I use to look at. Now, there's also qualitative measures. And the qualitative measures are things like how well does the influencer produce content? Do they, do they produce quality videos? Do they produce quality blog posts? Have they got a Facebook group or something like that that is well-managed, well-run, and you know not filled with spam? Do they provide a lot of value to their followers? Also, do they use profanity? And I know that that might seem a little weird to say, but if...
1: <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, this might not be the show for you then, Tom. I think a couple of times I think I've slipped on my recordings. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, profanity is something that is okay with some people, but it's not okay with others. And what I generally look for is I look to try to match an influence their that's going to match the company culture. Even if you're a small business, you have a culture, and
1: yes, of course, that makes perfect sense.
2: And you have a way of doing things. So I try to find influencers that are going to, you know, nicely mirror that culture. So if you're a company that's sort of not afraid of being abrasive, well, then an influencer who uses some cuss words might not be so bad.
1: But mm-hmm. maybe like a Gary Vander chuckle. We'll work in certain businesses, but maybe not in others.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just it's just a matter of finding what's comfortable there. Like, for instance, when I worked at HP, HP had a very family-oriented atmosphere, and they were not going to want to work with influencers who, you know, were thrown around four-letter words. Mm-hmm. So that was something that we took into consideration.
1: That makes perfect sense. So... You touched quickly on some of the social media platforms. Do you have a favorite platform that you usually like to work with with people? Or do you have any platforms do you think that are really coming up that we should be watching out for?
2: Well, that's interesting. I'm always keeping an eye on the platforms because the platforms sometimes are indicators of where certain demographic groups are congregating. So, you know, Snapchat, for instance, is very popular with younger people. Mm-hmm. You know, who moved off of many of the younger people moved off of Facebook and Instagram and gone to Snapchat, and you know they don't like, I guess, all the the older people hanging around on the platform, so that they 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 matriculate to someplace else where, <laughs> where they're going to have more of their own like-minded people. So the platforms sometimes are indicators of where the demographics are. Personally, I like Facebook a lot for engagement because. It is constantly updating itself and it's constantly trying to increase some engagement, organic even, especially in Facebook groups. As you probably are aware, Facebook groups have become very, very popular and there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are making good use of them.
1: I believe you have your own influencer marketer Facebook group as well, don't you, Tom?
2: I do. It's called Influencer Marketing for Badasses. (laughs)
1: For badasses. Ah, excellent.
2: (laughs) It's a little different than some of the other groups out there. I talk about a lot of these topics with the people in there because I think that they're very important. And if you're going to do influencer marketing, you should be looking at it from the point of view of a strategy, not just a tactic.
1: So what's the difference between a strategy and a tactic, in your opinion?
2: A strategy is the long-term view and how you're going to work with the influencer. So that could be on any social platform. It doesn't matter. You're going to want to establish a relationship with that person, and you're going to want to be able to work with them on a long-term basis going forward with your, your own business or with clients or whatever it is that you're doing. A tactic is simply, I just need to promote my affiliate program, so I'm going to contact some influencers, throw a little bit of money. And have them direct their traffic to my affiliate program so that I get paid. That's a tactic. It's not really a strategy because those people are not really thinking beyond, well, if you're promoting affiliate products, that's fine. That's great. I mean, that's actually a really good business model to be be pursuing these days. But you could do so much more with the influencers if you establish relationships with them and you think beyond just quick hits like on Instagram or something like that think longer term, think about how you can use those influencers to continually drive traffic to that affiliate offer and you're, you're going to be much better off.
1: So really looking at long-term value with the people. Yes. Opposed to maybe just a short-term payoff.
2: Right. I know there's nothing wrong with some short-term payoff. Don't get me wrong. I welcome that as much as the next person. But when you're building a business, You should be thinking longer term. You should have some sort of a view or vision of where you want to take things. And if you're establishing relationships with influencers who can help you build that, you're much better off. You're going to see benefits that far exceed just getting some dollars right now. You're going to be able to get things that are almost worth more than the money that you're getting now. And what I mean by that is what I've done with many clients is, once you establish relationships with influencers, you can start to pick their brains about what's going on in the marketplace that you wouldn't ordinarily find out on your own. So you can ask them, what are the customers saying to you? What are your audience members asking you about? What are their pain points? You can then take that information back inside your, your organization, whether it's a small business or you're an entrepreneur or you're a Fortune 500. You could take that information in and then you can enhance the products better so that they address those needs
1: Mm. so using them as a data source as well
2: yeah i call it an advisory board or a brain trust and i know that some companies are doing that and those that are are very very smart because they're tapping into what's going on in their customer mindset independent of focus groups and all those traditional marketing tactic things you're really really getting in there and then you can even leverage the influencers occasionally to you know put out a survey for you to pay them to put out a survey about a topic that you know you want to know the answers to and you know those influencers will help promote that survey and get the responses for you so it's better than a focus group when you think about it and much cheaper
1: absolutely so you brought up money i'm very curious when you do pay someone like this what type of money are we talking here how much are these people usually earning
2: well that's a great question Somebody like Tim Ferriss at this point would probably never even work with you or me, for that matter, because he doesn't have to. He's built a business for himself where he doesn't really need companies to pay him. And he, any companies he does work with, he works with solely because he believes in the product and uses it. So that's a pretty powerful position to be in if you're, if you're Tim. But most of us aren't in that position. In terms of paying them, the range varies quite a bit. There is a bit of a problem with greed on Instagram. I think that as soon as an Instagrammer gets up to about 100,000 followers, they think that they can start charging the world and that's not really the case. There are all different ways to grow an Instagram account rather quickly. And I think that you'd have to be careful if you're gonna pay too much money up front. You definitely wanna know what you're gonna get out of the influencer for the money that you're paying. And that's even true if you're just paying them 40 or 50 bucks for a shout out. Make sure that they are promoting your product or your affiliate service or your product in the in the right way. So, make sure they're using the language that you'd like them to use. Make sure that they're using, you know, photographs that are, you know, how would I put it?
1: Like that you would approve this type of things before it would go live. Yeah. I guess you need to keep up your own brand identity and make sure that it doesn't degrade your own brand.
2: Exactly. You don't want to cheapen your brand. So you want to make sure that any image that's put up there is something that you would you find attractive and that you want used. The language, like I said, the, the promotional language. And very often you can supply some of that language to the influencer. And you can and if they're a good influencer, you can work with them a little bit on massaging the language a little bit further mm-hmm. to try to drive you know, as much attention from the audience as possible.
1: So say that if I had an Instagram account and I had 100,000 people and I was an influencer with decent engagement and it fit the market, what would someone like me be able to expect if I were to be giving shout outs or promotions to other people's links?
2: It depends a little bit on the niche that you're in.
1: So what's some of the hot niches and which are some of the cold ones?
2: (laughs) Hot ones are usually fashion, lifestyle, Fitness, those are very hot right now.
1: Okay, okay.
2: So, you know, I know some fashion influencers, they're even based here in Houston, of all places, that, you know, can charge, you know, two, $3,000 for a, a shout out or for a series of shout outs.
1: Wow, that's some decent money for sending out an email or sending out a post. Yeah. I'm very curious about this because, like I said at the beginning of this interview, this is all very new to me, and I'm just so excited to be learning from you, Tom.
2: Yeah, no, I I am too. Here's something else to consider. If you're an influencer, you definitely want to have multiple social channels in which you can reach those audience members. And that's good for you because not every audience member that you get to reach is just going to be on Instagram, for instance there are plenty of people that inhabit the Pinterest world but really don't inhabit the Instagram world. So by having multiple social channels, it gives you multiple ways to reach these audience members of yours. And the more you have of that, the more that you can leverage that with brands that wanna work with you. So like we were talking about, once you get up to that 100,000 level of, with Instagram, a lot of brands will just start putting you on their radar, and they might start contacting you to, to see what, you know, what kind of an arrangement they could work out with you. What I would do if I was the influencer, I would say, look, please don't come to me with one-off opportunities you know, for a few hundred dollars here or a few hundred dollars there. Let's look at doing a longer-term contract together where for the next two to three months, we can work together and I can get your content out in front of your ideal customers through my social channels, but let's come up with a strategy as to how to do that. Maybe it's you know, the first month, it's kind of doing a little bit on Instagram and Pinterest. And then the second month you might continue the Pinterest, but you, know, you branch off from the Instagram and you start publishing some things on your blog. So use those social channels to your advantage and try to coax the brand or persuade the brand into working with you on a longer-term basis. That way, you're in projects that hopefully will last you know, two, three, four, five, even six months at a time.
1: That makes perfect sense. So what I hear you saying, Tom, is that make sure if you wanted to be an influencer, if you wanted to do something like this, that you would have multiple sources, multiple platforms, and that will make you a lot more valuable. And then you can maybe use one of those platforms as kind of the mouth of the funnel and then be able to push people from, say, something like Instagram, which is a very quick and fast visual platform, to something a little bit more long format, like a blog.
2: That's a great summary. That's perfect. Excellent. Just going to take a quick
1: break. Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish, and it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level to legally reduce your tax bill to live a more international life and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book. This is really interesting. So, I'm really curious. We've talked about Instagram and Pinterest and Snapchat. Are there any of the platforms coming up that you think are going to be popular in the future? Maybe some of the ones that we don't already know about?
2: That's a great question. And I'm really not sure how to answer that. <laughs> I stumped them. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of stumped me. You know, I follow what these people say because I'm in touch with them all the time. And I ask them, what is working for you? What's not working for you? And for instance, some of the influencers I work with don't have a YouTube channel, believe it or not. They're just, they don't like being on a platform like that. And I find that once the influencer gets comfortable with platforms that they're working with, they usually don't branch off too much after that. As to the ones that are bubbling up, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Some established platforms, I'm still surprised they're around to an extent like Twitter, because Twitter is, from my perspective, a bit of a problem because it's easily gamed. And what I mean by that is that bots are easily created, bot accounts, bot followers, everything. It's easily created. And sometimes it's kind of hard to tell whether the what you're interacting with is a bot or it's a person. So. That is a problem to me. So I usually don't put too much credence into Twitter as a, as a platform, which is unfortunate because it really does have huge potential. It's just that it's been gamed so much that I find it hard to tell the validity of many of the accounts there.
1: Well, what about Facebook? Now, when you message a company, there's a lot of times you will have a bot responding to you. Now, I've seen a lot of internet marketers, they think this is just the greatest thing in the world. Well, for me, on my side, it just absolutely drives me nuts, and I won't even do business with someone if they reply with a bot instead of a real person.
2: That's an interesting debate. Yeah, people are jumping onto the chatbot thing pretty quickly, especially on Facebook, because they see a lot of what they think is potential. And I think we're just going to have to see how it plays out. I do see the potential of it. I think it can be very useful. I find sometimes the bots can be a little bit irritating Because they will follow up with you when you don't want them to follow up anymore. And Mm -hmm. they'll start pinging you days after you've told them to stop and still coming after you. Well, yeah.
1: And I'll start getting, you know, messages at two o'clock in the morning or something like that. I'll be fast asleep and suddenly my phone goes off. And there's a message on Facebook where if I'm on someone's email list, I'm not getting notifications for that. I check my emails when I want to check my emails. Usually if it's on Facebook, it's one of my friends or one of my business associates, they've sent me a special message and I will check it and I will get back to them. But with the bots, it just seems to be at random times. Any, you know, and I live in the Middle East, so maybe it's a different time zones and it just drives me nuts. I'm not sure how everybody else feels about it.
2: Well, again, I think it's an issue of demographics. If you're a younger person who's 18 or 19 years old, bots might be completely acceptable. If you're somebody who's in their 30s, you might find them more irritating. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there are some real uses for them, and I think they could be great. I just think that right now people are jumping onto them, thinking that hey, this is the best way to build a list fast, and mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. let's let's get the bot going, and we can you know automate this and automate that.
1: <laughs> I've even heard people saying, "Oh, chat bots are going to kill email lists." Email marketing is going to be dead, chatbots are taking over, and I'm going, no. There's just no way. Uh, Maybe I'm too old for this stuff, (laughs) but I just don't believe it.
2: Well, Mikkel, it's like this. People have been talking about the death of email for I don't know how long now, and it still seems to persist. To me, it's a a very powerful distribution list. You're probably familiar with Mike Dillard, right? Mm -hmm. He talks about email and compares it to Starbucks. So if you think about Starbucks the way Mike Dillard presents it, Starbucks is is really a distribution network for a product. And on top of that, they have a real estate business. So they tend to buy the properties in which they install their stores or establish their stores. So they own real estate, which is profitable, number one. Number two, they're a distribution network. So he says on his podcast that having an email list is like having... Uh, A Starbucks distribution chain, but it's just virtual. So if you want to get in touch with your customers, you send out an email. I mean, how difficult is that? Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. very, very powerful. So I think Mike says that his email list is around 400,000. That's a lot of people. That's very powerful. That's substantial. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. That's an interesting point you make about Starbucks and real estate as well, because I've read quite a bit about McDonald's, and McDonald's really isn't in the fast food business at all. They're mostly in the real estate business. The amount of prime real estate that they own in the world is just worth absolute billions. Downtown Tokyo, downtown Manhattan, all these places that you'd never get a spot now, and they own the real estate there.
2: Yeah, it's another example of a, a very smart company. You know, whether you like their product or not, it's a distribution. They could switch to tacos, you know, next week. And there would probably be a lot of people upset about that. But at the same time, they would still have a huge customer base and probably come in and buy the McDonald's tacos, right? I mean, Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. so it's a very smart business proposition, the way that they've built it for themselves.
1: So you were talking about some of the agreements that would go on between an influencer and a company. Do you... Help people set up this type of agreement, or do you coach or mentor people on how
2: this should take place? Oh, sure. That's one of the sticking points today with influencer marketing. Many people, entrepreneurs in particular, and small businesses don't really understand that you want to have a little bit of a contract at least with an influencer before that you before you you work with them. Because I hear stories all the time about oh, I I gave an influencer some money and they never posted the stuff they were supposed to post. Or I heard one, on there was a a conversation going on in the influencer marketing community on LinkedIn recently where somebody had given an influencer $20,000 to do some kind of promotion or posts, and the influencer posted it, but there was no ROI out of it. So there are a lot of problems with that, and I definitely consult with people and coach them about how to approach an influencer and and write up a little contract like that so that there's an agreement between both sides. The influencer knows what's expected of them and you know what's expected of you. And that way you can measure to see how well the relationship you know, works after working together a little bit. And you can gauge whether, well, you know, maybe that influencer isn't the best fit for me and I'll move on and find another one. That happens all the time, whether it's a Fortune 100 company or an entrepreneur, you know, looking to get some shout-outs on Instagram.
1: So if someone needed to put together a contract like this, is that something that you could help them with? If they reached out to you at theinfluencemarketer.com, would you be able to help them?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: So where are you going in the future? What are your goals? What are you working on with your business now?
2: Well, I continue to do my consulting. I have an online course which I've developed and I'm now marketing to help people who wanna learn how to do influencer marketing. And I teach them it from soup to nuts. So that's a complete online video course. Plus there is one-on-one consultation time with me and they get inside a private Facebook group where you know, we can exchange questions, answers. I can help them in any number of ways. I shoot videos and post them in there. I, I do a lot of different things. And then what I'm starting to do now is something that I think is very, very exciting. I've teamed up with a branding and licensing expert. And he and I are starting to reach out to influencers who have substantial followings and audience numbers. And we are starting to talk to them about branding and licensing their content. And think of it the way that a magazine does. So I'm very familiar with the technology space. So I'll give you an example. Laptop Magazine has... An award, an editor's pick, and or a number of awards, actually, an editor's picks, an editor's choices, whatever they call them. And they have little logos for those. And the gentleman that I'm working with has helped magazines like Laptop develop that. And what that means is that any brand that wants to use that logo has got to pay laptop magazine. So the same should be true with influencers, because they are becoming brands unto themselves. And this is a trend that I'm continuing to see as time goes on, because I'll give you an example of of, a recent incident, incident, it wasn't really an incident, but it was just sort of a, let's say some dominoes fell recently. And what I'm talking about is the chief editor of Elle magazine, Glamour magazine, and Vanity Fair all resigned recently. Why did they resign? They resigned because glossy magazines are walking dinosaurs and they are on the way out. The advertising dollars are no longer going towards those types of publications like they once were. They are going towards social platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn and even Twitter. They're going to all these different social platforms because the brands realize that they can better reach their audience through those than they can through the magazines. Secondly, They are channeling advertising dollars to influencers. Because again, the influencers reach directly to the people that they want to develop a relationship or sell a product to. So why not go to the influencer?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have some friends of mine who are based out of Korea and they've got several hundred thousand followers on YouTube. And I've seen the amount of work that they put into their content and their videos. They went to university for videography and things like this. And their content itself is just absolutely top rate. And and absolutely, people like this should be compensated for it. It's no longer a fringe movement. This is really mainstream media now.
2: It really is. And it's exciting to be involved in it. And that's part of the juice for me. It's the excitement of being involved in something that's really sort of at the cutting edge of where things are going. And, you know, it's, it's energizing. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I love to make money as much as the next person does, but that's really part of it. And the other part is I just love the personalities that I get to meet and work with because, you know, the, the wonderful thing about influencer marketing is, is that you're not just, you know, paying to slap up some advertisement on a billboard somewhere. You're working with a person and you get to know that person and you can get to figure out how that person operates and what they like and what they don't like. And I, I just like that. Because when I get to go to conferences and mingle with some of these people, one of the things I enjoy the most is just getting together with a, over a cup of coffee with them in the morning before the conference really kicks off, or you know, in the evening with a, over a glass of wine and a dinner, and just talking about this stuff and hearing what they're doing and the exciting things going on from their perspective. That really, to me, is energizing, and I've just always enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I would think that a lot of those people would be very charismatic as well. Especially, say, the YouTubers or maybe some of the other podcasters who are doing such a personal medium. I think that a lot of them would just be fascinating.
2: Yeah, they really are. When you get into the B2B space, they're a bit more nerdy. <laughs> but even then... <laughs>
1: There's nothing wrong with nerdy. No, no, no. no but they're, they're fun. So, you know,
2: <laughs> if you're dealing with an influencer who's really key on Caterpillar tractors or something, I mean... It's interesting because they provide you with insights into things that I didn't know about. I, I don't know the first thing about a backhoe or a front-end loader or an excavator, but some of these guys, they just dig that stuff. They can't wait to get in one and drive it and try it out. And, you know, the same is on the technology side, too. I, you know, you get influencers that are, are big into enterprise storage or enterprise networking. And, and i got to tell you the truth, Mikkel, all the tech stuff goes right over my head. But I enjoy seeing these people so enthusiastic about it and how driven they are to want to like write about it and video about it and talk about it and evangelize it. It's really fascinating and fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've always said one of my biggest passion is meeting other people who are really passionate about other things, because really, I'm so curious about, you know, a million different things, I don't really care what we talk about. But if you love it, if you're really excited about it, then I want to hear about it. You know, I, I want to know what you know. So I can absolutely see the appeal in that.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's fun. It really is.
1: So can we do a little name dropping? Who are some of the other influencers that we might know that you've worked with in the past?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, most of them you probably won't know, because they operate in verticals. So, you know, I've worked, with Sarah Austin. I don't know if you've heard of Sarah Austin. She's a Forbes 30 under 30 personality in the technology space. She's, I just had a conversation with her just yesterday. She's over in Hong Kong covering some conference for some company that flew her over there. Another one is really an up and comer and you should pay attention to him if you're interested in tech gadgets at all. And a gentleman by the name of Andrew Edwards, he has his own uh, website called Gear Live. And he is an influencer, a tech gadget reviewer on Amazon. So he is really starting to gain steam right now and and develop a large following. I've worked with Chris Perillo, another one in the technology space. I had a conversation with him yesterday, too, about some interesting topics. If you look up Chris, you'll see he's got his own Wikipedia page. So there's all sorts of different influences. It just depends on the vertical that you're in. I haven't worked with anybody like Mike Dillard or anything yet because he's in the entrepreneurial space and it's just something that's a bit, you know, different. I don't have clients that are trying to penetrate that space, but if they were, I I would certainly have them on my list, for instance.
1: Interesting. (laughs) Very interesting. So you mentioned Amazon as a platform that people are becoming influencers in?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, they started with people who are already sort of established in the YouTube space. And, you know, Andrew Edwards is one of those guys and they've they've invited him in to talk about gadgets and technology and things like that inside their own ecosystem. So they're starting to cultivate their own influencers now inside that ecosystem. And you know, if you think about it, Amazon is almost a self-contained community. Many people just go there to shop, but many people will go there and they want to engage more with it. So that's what Amazon is doing. Amazon is slowly attracting, you know, more and more people to spend more time there. Because obviously the, the more time they spend there, the, the more, more likely they're to these,
1: spend money. Yeah, absolutely.
2: <laughs> they're to spend money, right? So rather than pop in and buy a book or a CD the, or a, you know, a, a video or something and leave, you know, they want you to come in and spend more time there and engage with the, with the other people there and, and, you know, buy more. So it's a smart strategy from their perspective.
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I probably spend about three hundred dollars a month just on books with Amazon, so that's my uh, that's my retailer of choice. I think so. So this is this is really interesting because I never thought of an influencer penetrating a market like Amazon and using it as a platform itself. So that's something I'm going to have to watch out for in the future.
2: Oh yeah, keep an eye on that one because Amazon is definitely on the move. They are doing lots of interesting things. For instance, Amazon Web Services, which is you know, an IT operation from from most people's perspective. I mean, they're advertising now on TV. Um, I I just saw an advertisement last night when I was watching a program for Amazon Web Services. I I was sort of astounded. But they're really starting to to push the, the envelope with their brand and get it out there so it's a bit more mainstream. So if you think about it, it's almost like Intel inside, right? If you buy a computer, many people look to see whether there's an Intel chip, in that computer because mm-hmm, they associate mm-hmm. quality computing, quality IT with Intel. So it's like, you know, that little logo that goes do, 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 you know, Intel inside Amazon web services, think of it in the same way, so it's it's almost, it's almost identical.
1: It's very interesting. I'm really going to keep my eye on this. This is a really good tip. Thanks for that, Tom. Sure. So I'm curious, what are some of the skills that you've found have been beneficial? What are the things that you think that people should be developing this day and age?
2: First of all, be a good writer. Writing is an essential skill these days, especially copywriting. I am still sort of educating myself on copywriting. And I think it's probably a skill that you never quite master. You're always learning no matter what. But writing, because you have to be able to communicate through a, a keyboard or some, you know, a type pad or something. You have to be able to communicate with your fingers. So, being a good writer is essential. The other thing is don't rely on automation too much. I know that there's a lot of talk about automating this and automating that and, you know, you should automate your business and it should be on autopilot and really when you think about it that's not true. Any good business person is putting a lot of time and energy into their business, whether it's creating new products or coming up with some new service or something, whether it's trying to figure out what The customer pain points are so that they can better develop something. These are all things that require a lot of time and energy, and you can't automate that. I don't care what anybody says. So, to work in line with that, I'd say become very, very fluent with the social platforms and know how they operate. So, Instagram operates a little differently than Facebook, and Facebook operates differently than Twitter. And and so, know those social platforms, at least what I would call fluent with them. that you understand how they basically operate, even though you might not particularly like them. Know how they operate because your customers are going to be found on some of those platforms, if not all of them. So the more you know about them, the better off you are.
1: So how do you learn about a platform without getting sucked in and just wasting (laughs) time? Because I I have to tell you, I always struggle with that. I'll be like, okay, I'm on Facebook. I, I need to do something specific. And then an hour goes by and I'm looking at cat pictures
2: yeah great. The thing I use is it's, a, it's called the Pomodoro timer. I don't know if you're familiar with that technique.
1: yeah, absolutely. You set twenty five minutes on the timer, you focus, and at the end of twenty five minutes, you reward yourself with something, maybe a piece of chocolate or and you built up that mental mental pathway that you focus intently for twenty five minutes and then you reward yourself
2: That's what I use to stay off the social platforms from them you know eating up all of my time. The funny thing is, though, that that being said, I find that some people like to communicate over Facebook Messenger rather than email, and then some people would rather communicate over LinkedIn Messenger than email, or you know maybe it's a combination of the two of them. So even though you, I try to really carve out time and, and keep to those strict parameters, I find that I drift a little bit even so because somebody's pinging you and you know. And <laughs> You know, they, they, they need an answer to a question or they want to get on the phone or, you know, they need help with something. So uh, it, it can be a little bit challenging to do that. But, I, I, again, I find that the, the Pomodoro method is, for me, the one that works. I, I, I'd suggest that anybody try it out. And, you know, you could, it doesn't have to be 25 minutes. You could set it to 15 minutes even mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you're dealing with a social platform. And then what I do is when I'm done with the social platform for that period of time, I close out the window. So I make sure that it's not constantly pinging me, little notifications coming up like so-and-so got back to you or something. You know, I, I turn it off so that it's not open. And if I don't see it, I usually don't think about it. That's the way I operate.
1: Yeah, I'm the same way. I have to close everything else down if I want to get to work. I think that they have studied psychology so much that they've gamified everything that it makes you, like, feel a necessity, almost an addiction to check when it's in front of your face, you can't leave that little number on the messages or anything like that.
2: Oh, I know, because if you see the notification saying well, you've got 16 notifications, it's like, whoa, well, what is that? You know, <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, it's what does that mean? You know, it, it's that little—I guess they call it the, the little dopamine. You know, every time that you see something like that, it, it triggers something in the brain, and you get a little reward. So yeah, you, like to your point, they've gamified all this stuff. So that's why you've got to be—you got to have some self-discipline and just. Learn to turn it off so at, at night, for instance, when I'm spending time with my family i I just turn the phone off and <laughs> I don't look look at it again until the next morning. Anything that's that urgent, you know they can they can figure out how to contact me but um, I, I just try to turn it off and and um, I find that I'm a bit happier even if, when I do that.
1: Yeah, that makes absolute perfect sense, and I'm right there with you, right there with you. So you mentioned using a Pomodoro technique. Is there anything else that you would suggest for someone who wants to, to learn about social media platforms, opposed to just being a user of a social media platform?
2: Well, one of the best ways to learn how to use them is if you're going to do something more than just use it as a, as a visitor. So if you want to learn about Facebook, in my opinion, you have to run some experimental ads and you have to put up some content that is beyond just writing a sentence or two on your timeline. So experiment a little bit with Facebook Live. Experiment with running a couple of ads to your business to see how it all operates. And, you know, you don't have to invest a lot of money in the ads. You could just run an ad for $5 a day for a few days or something, or $10 a day for a few days, and, you know, you're not out a lot of money. And you'll be able to go into that ad manager tool, and you'll be able to see you know, what kind of engagement you've gotten in there, you know, how many people have looked at it and all that kind of good stuff. It gives you a whole bunch of different stats. And that'll give you an insight into the platform beyond just what you see as a visitor. And the same with Facebook Live, because you'll notice that people drop, you know, they come on to the to the live while you're doing it and they drop off. And, you know, it might be a little disconcerting at first, but the thing to remember about Facebook Live is most of the views happen after the live has already occurred. So, as long as you post the video after you're done you you know you'll you'll the views will continue to accumulate
1: excellent 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 all really good tips so a little bit of trial and error with the social media platforms and then go in there with a purpose and try to stay focused exactly excellent so Tom Just tell me, do you like to read or do you take any courses or do you study or coaching or anything like this that helps push your career as an entrepreneur forwards
2: or push your business forwards? Yeah, I am a course taker. I like taking courses because I think that uh, I'm judicious as to what I choose. But for instance, about a year or so ago, I needed to know more about SEO and how it operated. And there's a guy named Ryan Stewart who is based out of Miami, Florida. And he runs an SEO agency, which he's built up from scratch. And Ryan is a no-nonsense guy. And he put together a course using his method that he uses for his own clients. And I took that course and that really educated me on SEO and how it's really done. And I mean, courses like that, I, I will take not just to try and help my own website or something with SEO, but I try to take those learnings and then apply them to my clients as well. Because the more that I'm knowledgeable, the more that, you know, the more that I can share with them about how things really operate. Because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of courses out there that are really not in depth and they really don't tell you how things are really done. And I find that very frustrating. You know, Many people just take a course, regurgitate it, and then resell it on their own. So that's why I'm judicious as to Uh, which courses I take. I make sure that if I take a course, it's by a person that I've been following for a while, and I have confidence that they really know what they're talking about. Another one about SEO that's good is, is Brian Dean's course. I took his as well. And I know that Brian has come in and consulted with some of the big companies, big tech companies, to talk to them about their content marketing and how they can improve that. And Brian's approach to SEO is a little bit different than Ryan Stewart's, for instance, where Ryan is much more into getting guest posts published and things like that. Brian is much more about creating what he calls epic content and creating you know, power pages that are packed with value so that they last and resonate for a long, long period of time. And they're relevant for a long, long period of time so that they help you rank better in the search engines. And he's got a whole bunch of different methods that you know, he teaches you how to evangelize those with different people, which is helpful, too.
1: So kind of on one side, you would have an influencer, a medium, and on the other side, you would have like a content-driven medium.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I'm judicious, but again, I, I find that taking courses is really, really helpful because there's so much to know. There's no way that you're ever going to just learn it all yourself. And it's like a lot of these courses are really pretty affordable. I mean, for you know, $1,000, you can become very well versed on a topic like SEO, or content marketing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. To be able to spend say like in your example $1000 and for that you get someone's 15, 10 or 15 years of experience studying, you know, countless hours on one field and they package it up into a product that might take you, you know, a couple of weeks to consume and at the end of it you have something to show and now you yourself are an expert. For $1000 or $500 or whatever it might be. For me, it's an absolute bargain. And I think that learning in this type of a model is just going to explode as we go into the future.
2: I agree with you. And I think that there are some people out there that are talking about the coaching products sort of you know, reaching the end of their life or something, or they need to be up-leveled or something. Maybe that's true. But I, I find that what people are doing, though, is they're actually putting more and more value into those products as time goes by because of the competition. And that's good. I mean, that's that's terrific. I mean, as, as someone who takes courses online, I find that to be kind of thrilling. The more time they give me, you know, whether it's through a consultation call or something like that, I'm, I, I think that's really well worth it.
1: So help me to understand, say on an average year, how much do you spend on personal development, either through going through training courses or coaching or things like this?
2: Probably about $3,500 to $5,000 a year I'd spend on courses. Like I said, I'm pretty judicious as to what I choose or what topics that I'm looking at. And they've got to be directly relevant or at least tangentially relevant enough that they're going to help me in my career and with my client set. So, you know, they've got to be, you know, I, I'm not going to go off and just take a course on, you know, fitness or something. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely attached to what I do for a living. As to books, I'm a reader, I'm an avid reader, and I'm always buying books on Amazon, too. And, you know, I'm probably getting, you know, a book every couple of weeks that, um, you know, I, I can't wait to sink my teeth into and, and devour.
1: So what are some of the books that have influenced you that have really helped progress your career?
2: Well, The 4-Hour week, like we we talked about earlier, is one of them. Another one is Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson.
1: Yeah, fantastic book. Fantastic book.
2: I haven't read .com secrets yet, but that's one that I want to sink my teeth into too. Another one is Finding Your Why by this guy named Simon Sinek, I think is his last yep. name.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've read it. It's a fantastic book.
2: That one is really sort of opened my eyes to a few things because I bought the book and I went through some of the exercises in it. And I was like, gee, wow. I mean, my motivation to do things that I'm doing goes much deeper than I even sort of consciously realized. And it was more of this deep emotional level. And I, 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 I found that to be really enlightening. So those are just a few of the examples that, um, you know, that I read. I also read a lot of history. I'm a big history reader because I was a a history major in college, and I've, I've continued that passion through through my, my whole adult life.
1: So, any particular field of history
2: that really interests you? Uh, ancient and medieval. I find ancient cultures to be really interesting, and medieval as well. I, I think that there's a lot of misnomers out there, if you want to call it that, about the Middle Ages— people weren't quite as ignorant as <laughs> they're painted to be in movies and such i think that they were <laughs> i think they were a little more enlightened than we like to give them credit for and i think that it's kind of fun to delve into that and to and to see just how how you know how creative they really were So
1: have you noticed anything that is now applicable in today's day and age by studying history, medieval history?
2: Well, more so ancient history for me than medieval history, because ancient history, you know, if you look at Roman history, for instance, many of the things that the Romans built are systems and methods that we use today. So the Roman Empire was known for its road system. It was known for its army and logistics. It was known for its law. Now, the laws that they lived under were quite different than what we live under today, thankfully. But uh, the fact that they were so interested in law and its importance to me is, you know, indicative of you know some lessons that we need to to keep in mind even today. Another thing about it is just if you look at populations and what they were interested in, the Romans give them entertainment, which today we would probably get sick over, but they were masters at it. And, you know, they built entire arenas and advertised, you know, things like gladiators and chariot races and things like that. And when you think about it, it's really, yes, yes. I, I mean, we're, people are not getting killed in the arena anymore, thankfully. But, you know, at the same time, gladiators were put on a pedestal. And even though they were slaves and they were highly trained, I mean, they were put on a pedestal like our athletes are today. I mean, many people today would, you know, They love J.J. Watt, for instance, here in Houston. J.J. Watt is a big football star. You know, the same thing happened back then. So the the parallels of human behavior really haven't changed too much. And I kind of find that interesting. And we look back at ancient history and we kind of dismiss a lot of it like, oh, they were all ignorant or, you know, they were this or that. And it really isn't that it really isn't true. They struggled with the same things that we struggle with today. You You look at ancient philosophy. You know, most people look at ancient Greek philosophy and they think of Aristotle and Plato. Well, those were two very high-minded philosophers, but most philosophy was, was structured and taught to help people deal with day-to-day life. You know, whether you adopted a cynic's attitude to things or a stoic's attitude to things or, or whatever. I just find that really fascinating, and people struggle with the same things today.
1: Yeah, because I think that Stoic philosophy has really taken on a new life in, say, the last 5, 10 years in the Silicon Valley kind of ecosystem over there with entrepreneurs.
2: It certainly has. And Tim Ferriss, getting back to Tim, he's been one who's promoted that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, it, there's a lot of tools in there that for, for people to use and utilize. I mean, got to remember, the human experience is the human experience. And it doesn't matter whether it was 5,000 years ago or, you know, it's today, we're still struggling with a lot of the same issues, and mm-hmm. something like Stoic philosophy, people are finding, is really helpful.
1: I first got into Stoic philosophy actually not from Tim, but from reading Ryan Holiday. Have you read any of his stuff?
2: I'm not that familiar with him. I'm familiar with his name, obviously, but I haven't read, I haven't read too much of his work. What, what about it really struck you?
1: So I would definitely recommend you picking up a couple of his books. He wrote a number of different books, a lot on marketing themselves, but he also did a lot with Stoic philosophy. So he wrote The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and Daily Stoic is like 365 days on, on wisdom and meditation. He has a really interesting philosophy and in a very interesting way that he writes.
2: I'll have to check that out. Thanks for recommending those books. I will look them up.
1: So, Tom, say that I was in Houston and, and we went out for a beer together and there's a lot of people around and I lean in and I'm going, "Okay, Tom, tell me the one secret, the one secret that if I wanted to be successful, I should follow, but if you, if I told anyone else, you'd have to kill me. This is just between me and you, Tom."
2: That's a great question, and I would say and this is going to sound, you know, we were just coming off the philosophy question, but I don't know if you're going to agree with it or not, but I'm going to say that you've got to be true to yourself and you have to know yourself. I don't care what business you're in. I don't care what product you're trying to market. I don't care what, you know, what business you want to get. I don't care what it is. You've got to be true to yourself. You've got to know your values. You have to really glue your behavior to those values. And to me, that's what's helped me to navigate my way through the business world, whether it's being an entrepreneur like I am now and a consultant, or whether I was an employee at a large corporation, because you will be confronted with situations in which you have to make choices. And I made some choices when I was at HP that, you know, thwarted my advancement. And I did it because what I was being asked to do at times I thought was, contrary to my value set. And I just wasn't willing to bend because at the end of the day, you've got to go home and sleep with yourself at night and look up at that dark ceiling sometimes in the, in the middle of the night when you wake up and you've got, to be able to, you've got to be able to live with yourself. And that to me has been a guiding principle. And there's one other thing that I would I'd say that's a bit more applicable to business directly. And that is treat your customers like gold. You know, be kind to them, extend more value to them than you were ever prepared to do. And, you know, don't expect anything back. But the more that you treat your customers like gold and really bend over backwards, so to speak, to service them, the more business you're going to get out of them. And your best business is business that you've already got. And I was taught that by a man named Al Golan who founded a public relations firm, which is a global public relations firm called Golan. Uh, I think it's called Golan Communications now. At the time that I worked there, it's called Golan Harris. And I had an opportunity to work with Al on a number of occasions, on a number of accounts. And just to put this into a, uh, why Al was important to me, not only was the founder and owner of the firm, but Al was the first PR person to work with Ray Kroc of McDonald's. And he helped put McDonald's onto the map from a PR perspective. And his wisdom and his learnings were just incredible. But the, the one takeaway from Al that I that I still carry to this day, and I cherish it, is treat your customers better than you treat yourself.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. So integrity and take care of the customer, number one.
2: Yes. Great. Boy, you have a great way of summarizing things. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you very much, Tom. Well, Tom, I'm going to be respectful of your time. Thank you so, so much for being on our show today. I know my guests are going to get a ton of value from this. And uh, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, can you just give us your website again and maybe your email address if anyone wants to get a hold of you?
2: Sure. The website is called theinfluencemarketer.com. And you can reach me directly at tom at theinfluencemarketer.com email address, and I will respond to that. That's my personal email address, and I respond to any and all inquiries that come in there. So you will get a response from me, and I will do my best to help you.
1: That's great. Thanks so much for your time, Tom. I'll let you get back to work, and we'll talk again soon, okay? Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. I enjoyed being on your show. I loved it.
1: Okay, I want to read you the reviews from the back of the book that some massively famous people in the international living space have wrote for me. See if you recognize some of these names, okay? So Gregor Gregerson says, In Expat Secrets, Mikkel elegantly describes the many benefits that accrue to those that choose their country of residence and provides practical and timely tips and examples for doing so. This book is a game changer. Leif Simon says, Having lived and worked overseas for more than a
0: quarter century myself, I've seen expats make every mistake under the sun. Save yourself time and energy and learn from someone who has actually done it.
1: Expat Secrets is the book to get you started in your international journey. Edmund John says, having incorporated hundreds of companies for my clients over the last seven years, this book is very helpful for those that are starting out. And Michael Cobb says, a huge thanks to Mikkel for clearly written, concise description of the international experience as lived by a true globetrotting pioneer. Especially refreshing is the chapter on the benefits of raising kids overseas. As the father of two third culture kids, I can personally assure you that no education expands the mind more than growing up overseas. And my good friend David McKeegan wrote the forward to this book. But I will let you read that yourself when you go to Amazon today and you purchase your copy of Expat Secrets.
0: Thanks, guys. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.
2: I have managed to secure
0: exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investor's Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to Capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region.